there's so many problems with these kind of drawdowns, right? Because I think that uh, I think a lot of investors they they really can't stomach probably once you start going much beyond 15% drawdown or even certainly 20. I think a lot of people get very uncomfortable. I would say that I would also get rather uncomfortable because uh, it's not really sort of what I would be expecting, right? You know, you've got to have a certain type of investor and a certain type of manager who is who is able and willing to keep going, even if you are experiencing 25, 30, maybe even 50% drawdown. And I'm not sure how many managers and how many investors, you know, really sort of can pull that off successfully. Most new CTA benchmark themselves against the B-Top 50 index, comprised of the some 20 firms in possession of more than 50% of the industry assets. These are the largest and most successful firms in this particular category. The question is, how does an emerging manager compete and break in knowing 80% or more of the available investor capital flows to these few firms? The good news is that all of these firms at one stage was also an emerging manager. Of the 20 firms in the index, 19 of them started with AUM less than $5 million. Interestingly, each of these firms had their best annualized returns for the first three to five years in business, returning on average 20% per year. Once their AUM grew beyond $500 million, their annualized return settled around 10 to 12% and their correlation converged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. months yeah and and uh, currently we're allocating 50 percent 50 percent across the two time frames where we want to move to an allocation of about a third in each time frame mm -hmm. sure. right so again sort of this philosophical perspective of of an even weighting right because the reality is that in our case anyway the shorter term time frames uh actually have better risk adjusted returns higher shock ratio mm -hmm. right But, but we are sort of making a deliberate decision that, no, you know, we want a, an evenly balanced portfolio. Yeah. Um, and, and we also look at it from a scalability point of view. It's harder to scale on the very short term than the longer, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, then we look across the models. And we, we really have multiple models running right now, but they, are, they fit into two broad categories, I would say. Okay. Um, directional volatility and mean reversion models. Okay. Now, our core philosophical uh, viewpoint or you know, perspective is that we believe that the markets have directionality and they, that there are trends, and, 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 and that's, that's sort of our cornerstone, right? Yeah. That, that's, that's, we believe that that's the place for us to be. But we have done pretty extensive research, and we found that the mean reversion models actually uh, can, on a standalone basis, actually make monies and have good – risk-adjusted returns, uh, and perhaps more importantly, uh, they provide a more uh, steady uh, return stream and, a, and an inversely correlated return stream to the core directional volatility models. Sure. 
So, so we weighted those 70, 30, 70 to the directional volatility, 30 to the mean reversion strategy. Okay. So when you look now, when you look across portfolio risk, uh, you have this situation about, okay, how do you want to, how do you want to manage your portfolio as the assets grow and the assets decline? Let's just say it has nothing to do with withdrawals or additions. It has just to do with the underlying performance of the, of, of the portfolio. And um, in our case, uh, the, the the research that we've done and the decision that we made is that we will uh, uh, we will increase our capital on allocation and and risk proportionately as the assets grow, and we will stay uh, static as the uh, um, as the, as as you go through a drawdown. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, so so. You know, so that's a decision. In terms of position risking, we look at underlying volatility in the markets. So we will uh, position size relative to the under underlying volatility of the market at, at a, any particular point in time. In higher volatility environments, um, we actually look to uh, reduce our positions to scale out of positions. And in lower volatility, we look to increase our position sizing. So, so let me just, I, I just want to make sure I fully understand this. So are you saying that, as an example, you have $10 million under management and, you know, when you go through the uh, allocation, uh, let's just say that coffee gets a 10 lot allocation based on current volatility. Now, if you draw down, say 10% or 20% and volatility is unchanged, so all things being equal, you would still trade coffee at 10 lots. Is that what you're saying? Ah, Meaning okay. that you keep the same uh, asset allocation uh, in, in, in doing drawdowns? Uh, okay, so so you're talking about two things on the portfolio level and then on the individual market level, right? So on the individual market level, uh, we will look to... Uh, use a constant risk, and you're right, relative to the overall uh, asset on a management uh, um, number, mm -hmm. right? But so to use your example, if the if the volatility in the coffee market is the same, yeah, and in your example, at a, an AUM of ten million, we were trading ten contracts, mm -hmm. and now AUM goes down to nine million. And and the, the underlying volatility of the coffee market is the same. Yeah. Then yes, we would be trading ten sure. contracts at sure. that time. As well. It's very interesting because um, I've seen this before, and um, to some degree, I like that. Uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of people say, well, logically, if you have a smaller account size, you should trade smaller. On the other hand, we we all know that if you believe in your system, um, uh, then the best exactly. Then you know that. Uh, you know, the best time to invest is when you're in a drawdown. Um, and so uh, so I can see the logic in what you're doing by uh, keeping it. Although I would say personally, this is just a personal observation, uh, there probably should be a limit, <laughs> meaning okay. that there is right. a certain, because otherwise you could end up having a disproportionate higher internal leverage than when you started out. And, and maybe, maybe there is a, a limit in your system as well. Nils, your observation is spot on, and and I think you're exactly right. It comes down to your inner belief. 
if you really believe in what you're doing and your models and your portfolio construction, et cetera, et cetera, then you should not be delevering, right? Because yeah. the best opportunity is is during the drawdown and you want the recovery time sure. to be quick. Yeah. Right? You don't want it to be dragged on. So that's why you don't delever. Yeah. However, there is a point where you have to say, well, there's something wrong here, right? Sure. And and that's I for us that is sort of along that is, is about this profiling, right? So that's where the historical simulation and portfolio construction and the correlation matrix and everything, all of that research come in, is that when you look at that and you go back over 30, 40 years or maybe more years and you have that data and you and and you and you've simulated and you you built this portfolios and, and, and you have you have a you have a high degree of confidence in sort of in that interrelationship and the behavior of all these models, right? Mm. And your expectations are that the worst case scenario over those 30, 40 years is a, you know, 20% drawdown or something, right? Mm. Then I think you have to say that at some point, if you are exceeding those parameters, I think you have to then say that something is wrong. Sure. There's something wrong. I may I made a mistake somewhere. Or maybe the world has changed so much it's possible, mm. but there's something wrong. So that you have to pull the plug at you know maybe 25% drawdown. You just have to pull the plug. Yeah. And and that's sort of what we say to. Uh, that's what I've been saying to investors and prospective investors. I've said to them, listen, you know, we're going to pull the plug if 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 that scenario occurs. It's either that there's something wrong with all of our research and our models and the portfolio allocation, construction, et cetera, et cetera, or that the world has just changed so much and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's not working the way we thought it was going to work. But when you say that, Kim, and to a large extent, I agree with you, but I also have to base my own 25 years of experience in this business and say, well, hang on a minute. Because we've just been through a period of time where managers who've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, some of them saw their worst drawdown get exceeded by 50, some even 100%, meaning if they were historically down max 15%, suddenly they found themselves in a 30% plus drawdown. And so by any standard, I think the question would be, are we still, is this still working, um, and, and so on and so forth, as you just described. However, as we also saw in 2014, the very same managers, some of them had their best annual returns ever in their long history. And I guess by now, all of these big managers, uh, and, and, and the smaller one as well, are making new all-time highs. So... It's, 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 it's a tricky question because things can certainly get pushed out of whack and, and you very elegantly described the convergent decisions by central banks a few years ago, which clearly created a unusual environment for these strategies, causing larger than normal um, drawdowns. But um, as a study, I think, aspect sponsored uh, by Bath, uh, people at Bath University, um, if you go back 100 years or however long they did, when you've seen periods of unusually bad performance, if we put it that way, usually after that you, you get a period of above average performance. So it's a tricky one, but I think at least there should be some steps written in the system 
that says if we go beyond um, our max drawdown, then we certainly can't have uh, you know additional uh, leverage built into it, or at least there needs to be some mechanism worth deleveraging, I guess. No, it's, uh, it's uh, look, uh, you, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, and you are indeed correct in the observations, and um, and I, I, there's so many problems with these kind of drawdowns, right? Because I think that uh, I think a lot of investors they they really can't stomach. Uh, you know, I don't know. Probably once you start going much beyond fifteen percent drawdown, or even certainly twenty, I think a lot of people get very uncomfortable. And uh, and I would I would say that I would also get rather uncomfortable because uh, it's not really sort of what I would be expecting, right? So so you got to have you know you got to have a certain type of investor and a certain type of manager who is who is able and willing. Uh, to keep going, even if you are experiencing 25, 30, maybe even 50% drawdown. Uh, and I'm not sure how many managers and how many investors, um, you know, really sort of can pull that off successfully. I mean, I think that, I think what we've seen, I haven't studied it in great detail, but I, but I think what, what occurred over those years is a tremendous amount of assets left, even these uh, larger, managers uh really a lot of a lot of lot of volatility in assets on the management and i think some of them probably also went out of business uh but also you're right that the ones that did stick it out uh they've been able to come back but nevertheless i think they came back with much less assets on the management than what they had before sure and and, and i think that 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 is a very very good uh, observation and comment and um um as as as, as you know and and Probably, as many of the uh, listeners know, um, today I work for one of the most successful uh, managers in, in, in the world who have been around for 40 years and who have stomached uh, a 50% drawdown along the way, but who have also outperformed most uh, managers in the last five years uh, coming back and coming out of this. But at the same time, my, my good friend Jerry Parker uh, at Chesapeake uh, alerted me to, uh, I think it was, yeah, alerted me to a study um, or a comment at least about systems in general. I know it wasn't his own um, research, but but something he had uh, read, and I, I kind of, it escapes me right now what it is um, uh, or who wrote it, but the conclusion was, and I actually tend to agree with that very much indeed, even though it's counterintuitive, and that is, that the most robust systems are actually the ones with most volatility and big drawdowns. And that's a little bit counterintuitive because everybody thinks if you can create something that looks steady and, and, and for all intents and purposes is steady, that that must be very robust. But actually uh, their argument or the argument in this piece of research is that no, you want systems that has been through you know, rough times um, and come out of it and survived over a long period of time because they are themselves or have indeed proven to be robust. So it's 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 a super interesting uh, conversation. Love to talk to uh, you more about that. But right now, I know that a lot of people are dying to learn more about your particular strategy. So let me get back on track on, on that. Um, give me. 
you know, one thing I found uh, in doing this podcast, and that is people love examples. Um, and um, and if you're game, um, tell me a little bit, give me some examples of, you know, what is a trend following model for you? And what is a mean reversion model for you? What do they look like? You don't have to be super specific, but what kind of indicators or whatever you might uh, use uh, goes into creating these uh, models. Yeah, great. So Nils, I think uh, you teed it up very interestingly because um, there is something very powerful in simplicity and the simplicity of a model. And mm -hmm. I think there is a direct correlation between the simpler a model is, the more robust it is. Sure. Uh, and, and, and also, uh, if this the simplicity of a model that can be applied and in our case, we insist on that, that it can be applied across multiple sectors and markets, and it has to be able to show that sort of robustness and consistency. I think all of those things uh, lend itself to giving a higher confidence level as opposed to a model that's very intricate and very targeted to a particular sector or market, mm. right? So, so I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, <laughs> the conundrum is if you make it very simple, and I believe that the earlier models were probably very simple and they worked and yeah. they continue to work. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the problem with these very simple models is that they have a lot of volatility in them. Sure. Um, and so, so, you know, so as we spoke about, I think the, the industry has just become much more competitive. Mm. And, and, I, and I think the investor is more demanding and they want something that has better risk-adjusted returns. And so to your point, can you produce models that are indeed superior, have better risk-adjusted returns, but have the same re underlying robustness of the very simple models? Sure. And, and I think that's a that's an that's an ex, that's an excellent uh, question and, and a very interesting debate. Mm -hmm. um, so look, we've we've tried to tackle that, mm -hmm. and it is a it's a it's a fine balance because there's no doubt the more intricate you get, you the better hypothetical results you can you can show. But the question is, you know, how well are they going to hold up going forward? Yeah. So. Um, Look, so, so so part of the things that, that, that we try to do is is that whatever ideas that we introduce into these models, again, they should hold true across a broad, a broad sectors and markets, and that the underlying idea should be should should we say sort of a value added component that shows its value again across multiple sectors and time frames and markets. Um, because then the conclusion is, at least from our point of view, is the conclusion is, okay, there, there's something here that appears to be robust and valid, mm -hmm. and, and, and therefore it, it uh, earns the right to be part of the, the model. Okay, so I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Sure. Um, so uh, you can look at market sectors and markets as having cyclicality, you know, certain underlying cyclical tendencies, mm -hmm. right? And you can therefore build the quantitative models and indicators that, that, that reflect the underlying cyclicality in each sector and each market. 
and you may be very comfortable with that, right? Now, we do not do that. We, it's, it's uh, you know, partly I think that the underlying cyclicality of the commodity markets have somewhat diminished over time. I think maybe historically there were more underlying cyclicality as the markets were more local and more concentrated, but many of the markets have become more global. And so the demand and supply is more spread out than it was in the past. And hence, perhaps some of the underlying historical cyclicality that existed, particularly in the commodity markets, is not as prevalent as it once were. Sure. So we, we actually subscribe to applying our models on a non-cyclical approach across across these various different markets and sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, now, another question that comes up is, okay, so you trade across multiple timeframes. Well, how do you pick the timeframes? Right. right. Should you optimize these various timeframes or should you not optimize them? You know, what's your approach, mm. right? So our approach was, again, not to optimize the timeframes. And actually, we are pretty um, indifferent as to these timeframes. But where we are uh, most particular is, is, is in the spacing between the timeframes. Right. Right, right. Because if you align one timeframe very closely to another timeframe, then you're really not getting all that much diversification between one and the other because they're so closely aligned. Sure. Right. And, and so, so for us, the most important thing was the spacing of these timeframes. Okay. And because we don't believe sort of much in the underlying cyclicality of the markets and we don't want to differentiate one market from the other anyway, we were completely sort of, um, I would say, arbitrary about you know, the timeframes that we use in the models. That, and, and that timeframe is the same that we use across all of the various sectors. Now, the other thing is that when you look at these uh, components and and these mathematical indicators, you can have them be sort of static in nature. Uh, A moving average could be a 50-bar moving average, as an example, right? And and maybe a moving average can be parabolic and it can be, you know, can have different type of characteristics. But the, the, the bar, number of bars is pretty stagnant. I think that's... That's, I, I think that is probably true for most of the models out there. Um, and we like to think that's true because sure. this is a point where we think we have a, a, an element of differentiation. Okay. In, in other words, we will split out our models across these relatively arbitrary timeframes. Um, but within the timeframe, we have an underlying dynamic component so that this 50 bar example I gave you could be 50 bar sometimes, maybe it could be 40 bars or 60 bars, and it has variability, mm-hmm. right? So we have we have an underlying uh, um, uh, sort of components that help make this these primary signals uh, dynamic in nature. So let me try and understand that. Sorry to interrupt you. Let me try and understand that. So if you're tra- trading today, your models are choosing a 50-bar uh, breakout model. Just just uh, use that as an example. That would then apply across all markets. But right. there is some element to that model, 
and maybe it looks at historic profitability as an example, so that two weeks from now, instead of using 50 bars, it might only use 45 bars. Correct. Uh, and I will be more. I'll give you more specifics in terms of how does it determine to whether sure. it should be forty-five or sixty bars. And <clears throat> for us, it it depends on the underlying volatility of the markets. And and the, all of that that volatility, of course, can be expressed in many many different ways. Um, but we have sort of a a, a, a an, an, an an approach to how we determine and, and uh, calibrate volatility. Uh, in, in, the, in the sort of most uh, basic concept, we look at you know near-term volatility versus some historical volatility, and that gives us a gauge as to um, how uh, you know how to how to adjust um, this underlying time frame. <laughs> and and the objective, right? The objective for us is to try to get somewhat better traction and better accuracy in our primary signals okay and we think and we think that we're able to achieve that and so changes in volatility clearly can change the number of bars you change and i guess or you look at uh, and i guess there might be a range so that the longer term models can't go below 40 bars for example or you know uh, i guess you need to in order to keep the distance between the, the time frames in in check i guess but right do they not That's, look do yeah. they do they not look at historic profitability meaning if if 40 bars were really a bad, profitable right. sort of uh, time uh, parameter to use, then it, it, it wouldn't use it? Or how do you balance between changes in volatility and profitability uh, over time? Um, so we don't actually look at the historical profitability of the model. Okay. We, we, we don't. Um, maybe that's an interesting thing to look at, but we, we have not done that. Um, the whole objective analysis, and I can explain it to you in, a, in another with another example, sure. is that is is that look if you have a simple moving average model, and the market is behaving in a normal way, meaning it's trending in a normal contained way, sure. and you and you have a moving average that's that's uh, that has a pretty decent fit right to this mm -hmm. this kind of activity, then it's very hard to beat uh, that model yeah. over in that environment because, okay, it gets you in a little bit late, it gets you out a little bit late, but it really captures the move and it captures it very nicely. Yeah. Right? So that's in an environment that's sort of a normal, trendy, ordinary environment. Mm -hmm. The problem is when the market is not in an ordinary uh, trending environment, and uh, and so you can try to sort of classify the various type of environments it might be, right? So one environment is in a, an environment where uh, it is trending, it's directional, but the market tends to have sort of a parabolic shape, mm -hmm. right? So it's sort of accelerating on on the upside and it's going vertical. And the problem with with that market is that if it re reverses yeah. uh, quickly. The problem is that the open PNL evaporates, and the impact on the underlying volatility of the portfolio is enormous. Sure. Right, so you're building up this huge open PNL, and then it evaporates. It's a very bad, you know, it's a it's a very bad feeling, right? 
<laughs> so you need so, to reduce the number of bars that your system is uh, looking at in that uh, environment. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's ex right. That's exactly it. Right. So, so ideally, right, you want to be able to say, okay, you know, when the market is very normal and behaving beautifully and then, you know, you have a certain amount of bars and it captures mm -hmm. it very nicely. Yeah. And when the thing goes parabolic, right, then you want to have a more snug fit. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So essentially we attempt to do that. And, and at the same time, what we also attempt to do is we attempt, oh, this is not an attempt. It's more of a money management thing, really, is that we reduce our uh, open positions, right? We reduce sure. our sure. Uh, uh, position volatility. Size. Increase. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so we'll sense. look to scale out. Sure. Right. We'll look to scale out and take profits, and and it's not because uh, we know how to pick tops, right? Sure. <laughs> or bottoms, but it is really to try to deal with this underlying problem of of of. It, it's really to try to mitigate the uh, the enormous volatility you can have in on the portfolio in those kind of situations. Sure. Can I ask you a question? Um, is it is is the same true that if you get into range trading environment for these kind of models that actually the best thing to do then is to increase the number of bars in order not to be whipped around too much i would say yes uh, there's a there's a there's an element of of an attempt right there's a, that's yes we try to do that the other thing we try to do is we are we actually flat our margin utilized, our capital utilization is very low. We run right. a, an average around 15%, which I think is pretty low. Um, and and the reason for that is that we are out of the markets a fair amount of the time. We're yeah. probably out of the markets about a third of the time. Sure. And so part of it is what is sort of scenario that I just explained. But the inverse of it is what you 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 teed up is that mm. well what do you do in a sort of sideways trending sort of choppy environment yeah. and 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 the holy grail right is to stand aside <laughs> and and not do anything sure um, no absolutely and you can do that by combining say if we stay in the moving average space you can combine three or four different you know oscillators together and obviously some will be long some will be short but net net you might be flat overall and and obviously that's that's uh, one way of doing it um but that's fascinating i appreciate that that's that that's uh, i hope people are paying attention and making notes because that's a that's a real uh, good insight uh, uh from from your side um how do you i don't want to talk risk management just now um but i do want to ask you whether you use models that have hard stops uh or whether you only do as we just uh, discussed, uh, sort of change the parameter sets uh, dynamically uh, in order to perhaps contain, control uh, the risk better. So, Nils, I was saying on the directional, uh, the directional models, uh, they all have predetermined um, stop, okay, stop loss. Uh, so, really, the only ones that don't are the mean reversion strategies. They don't. They 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 don't run stops. Tell me a little bit about mean reversion strategies in in the context of uh, of what you do. Uh, what have you found that tends to work better? Because a lot of obviously mean reverting strategies is really known for the ones where you you pick up pennies, but then one day you get run over by a train, and uh, right. you know you're you're out, so to speak. Right. So, right. so how? And it's a little bit against the philosophy of trend following, which is interesting as well. So, so how how do you marry the two? 
well, I think that's that's part of that's the attraction, right? Is that they are really opposite. Yeah, opposite attracts us, they say. Right, and 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 they behave completely opposite. Yeah. Right, which is the beautiful thing because the 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 directional uh, sort of trend following approach is one where you see um, uh, the spikes right on the equity curve. Sure. Right? you see you see it sort of meanders around, and then you get the moves, and you and you see the the equity curve increases sharply. Mm. Right, you see the pure asymmetrical, uh, the beautiful asy- a- yeah. asymmetrical smile of the directional volatility markets, right? Sure. And and that's why we as CTAs we love the Sotino ratio, <laughs> right? Instead of the instead of the shop, right? Um, and the and the mean reversion are exactly the opposite. Yeah. Right. They're they they're you know you make 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 and then boom. Yeah. <laughs> you 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 get hurt, right? Sure. And then you know hopefully you make and make and make again. Um. So marrying the two has a has a real attraction. Now, and what we just talked about is sort of the reducing position sizing and scaling in, scaling out of the markets. Um, for us, that is a a baked in mean reversion strategy. It it doesn't fight the trend, right? right? But it 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 reduces uh, uh, trend exposure. Mm-hmm. Right, so so to us it has to, to us we call that a a, a sort of baked in mean reversion, mm-hmm. right? Because we're we're taking chips off the table and and whereas a hardcore trend following uh, uh, trader yeah. will ride that thing till you know it's going to go from uh, you know it's going to go from a hundred to zero or from a hundred yeah. to you know a million, right? <laughs> yeah. So 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 for us in the core models we have that baked in. Yeah. And then we found across the financial markets that pure mean reversion strategies, you know, standalone mean uh, reversion strategies, um, actually can work quite well. Mm. And and they are, uh, you know, they are uh, strategies that uh, will look to, you know, buy into weakness or sell into strength, and um, and. And, you know, as you sort of explained is that they have a high probability of success mm. and they take out, you know, sort of nice chunks when they are successful. And when they're not successful, they take a, a, a disproportionately larger chunk, but they do it much less frequently. Right. Sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> now it's just the nature of them. But then, on right, because we trade the same markets okay. uh, on the on the directional volatility side. Right. Mm. So, so if we're really sucking wind on, <laughs> on, on a mean reversion strategy, we tend to uh, mitigate it or even make it up for it on the directional side. Yeah. And hence also a little bit the weighting, right? Because, uh, sure. because, uh, you know, sort of our core is really looking for those directional asymmetrical moves. Does performance wise, does the mean reversion strategies deliver 30% of the overall performance? Uh, is it that simple over time? Or how much performance do they actually attribute compared with the size of allocation? It's very, uh, that's a great question. And uh, I, I can't actually answer that uh, that's fine. No worries. Uh, directly, but sure. because I haven't, I haven't looked at it quite that way. Sure. And I think perhaps we probably should. But uh, but I can tell you the way we do look at it, we look at it very much in the framework of the portfolio, right? Right. So so again, like you you could you could have you you could make a very compelling case 
for having uh, models in certain markets and sectors that actually don't make money, but they have such a low or inverse correlation to all of the other activities that you engage in that it helps mitigates the overall volatility of the portfolio, right? And therefore becomes a very valuable player. So so this sort of really the way we look at it, particularly with regard to the mean reversion thing, mm-hmm. is because when, for, for instance, so let's take an example. So the, the 2008 financial debacle and mm-hmm. subsequent the uh, uh, sort of decompression in the financial markets and the, the lowering of volatility over a multi-year period um, and sort of somewhat absence of directionality, the mean reversion models were very effective. Mm-hmm. in carving out a steady return over that period of time. Right. Right. So they really helped mitigate the when you're, you're, you're always placing bets and looking for that directional move and it's never materializing. Right. So you keep you, you're bleeding. Right. You yeah. keep bleeding. You're betting. You're betting and you bleed and you bleed. And the directional volatility, uh, the direction, the mean reversion models were very helpful in sort of, you know, mitigate yeah. that. Yeah. And um, and and so. So we're sort of look we look at it in that sense, right? Because it it we just find that it, it's they're very helpful in um, in reducing the overall volatility of the portfolio and 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 providing for a more um, steady and maybe maybe higher confidence uh, level of a of a constant sort of return stream. Now you mentioned before, if I'm not uh, remembering incorrectly, that mean reversion models don't have a stop. And of course, we just experienced a, a, a so-called black swan event in the Swiss franc uh, a couple of months ago. Um, I know from your newsletters that you were not involved in that, um, but uh, but it does raise the eyebrows uh, when it comes to risk management uh, on mean reversion trades. And we we do know that a lot of people got. Uh, you know, badly hurt um, during that time. Do you not worry about not having a stop for a mean reversion strategy? It's uh, Nils, it's certainly worrying. And that's also why we dug in and we wanted to do some analysis post the, the Swiss National Bank's surprise move and the subsequent uh, enormous uh, revaluation of the Swiss rank. Yeah. Um, and and uh, yes, uh, does it make you uh, nervous? Does it make me nervous and uncomfortable? Yes. Um, you know, I think that what we try to do is, is as we talked about earlier, is that we are very, you know, we talked about processes, right? Mm. Portfolio construction and risk allocation. And, and what we spoke about is that, you know, we're very, um, uh, we have strong beliefs about allocating a certain amount and broadly allocating across various sectors and markets and evenly allocating across them. And a certain particular allocation across the various models, and the models are running across various different markets, right? So every individual single market gets a relatively small allocation, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you have a blowout uh, in in say the Swiss markets, uh, yes, you know you take a hit, but if you take a hit maybe of uh, in in the in the in, in a couple of percent or three percent or maybe even five percent you know you you still live to fight another day sure. now you, I, you you can't have you can't have the kind of concentration i mean if we're talking about look if you're talking about long-term capital management right where you're talking about 30 30 times 50 times leverage mm. 
and you essentially are engaged in mean reversion strategies with that kind of leverage, right? You know, you are you are you, and you go through a black black swan. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're gone. Yeah. But but keep in mind what I told you is that our leverage is minimal. Sure. Right. I mean, we our capital utilization rate is on average fifteen percent. Sure. So we're trading on a leverage of maybe two, three times, yes. tiny compared to you know those kind of classic mean reversion strategies. And I do accept that. And my understanding is also, of course, that you know uh, you're taking off chips from the trend following part. So in theory, at least, you could say that you might you know you might hurt on the mean reversion trades in a situation like that. But hopefully, then some of the trend following or volatility uh, directional trades will would be kicking in and, 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 and help you out. So I, I, I do accept that uh, as a concept. Although I would say, I think people forget a little bit. I mean, there was a lot of damage done by, by in, in the markets uh, for that one event. And I think people forget that that was just one market. I mean, imagine if it was the euro breaking up and you had, you know, 17 different markets going wild at the same time because it wasn't just the currency. I mean, equities, you know, in Switzerland got hurt significantly and so on and so forth so i mean I, 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 to me at least it does uh, it, it 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 does happen more often than people believe and and um anyway i i do like uh, i i do like having these uh, uh i guess very quantifiable risks uh, even though sometimes uh, it's performance wise is is better not to uh, to use uh, directly um stops uh, on on your positions anyway yeah well i mean look nils i mean in general right these kind of events are, are the kind of events that we live for yeah no no i agree <laughs> but, i agree <laughs> i mean that's typically where we have our best performance sure sure yeah and and certainly january turned out to be just that and uh, and yeah. i think this month is not looking too bad for most trend followers either so uh no. so i think there's good news uh, on on the way I wanted to talk, I mean, we've kind of already done that sort of digressing into to the risk management side, which is very important, uh, I think, uh, generally speaking. But I just wanted to ask you one thing, uh, just from an overall point of view. In terms of risk, how, how have you found best to define risk? I mean, what is, what is risk for you? Uh, you know, is it the value at risk? Is it the, the standard deviation? You know, uh, how, how do you... How do you quantify risk? Right. So, um, so I think that we, you know, we sort of look at it partially from a top down and and and, and partly sort of bottom up, right? So we we talked at, at length about sort of portfolio construction, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that we we're, we're big uh, advocates of, of of having a process, right? And the process essentially embodies a uh, almost sort of a, a belief. In, 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 in things such as it's better to be trading eight sectors and 60 markets than trading one sector, two markets. Right. Right. It's better to have an even allocation across many sectors and markets than have very concentrated. Right. Like, right. There's a, so there's a old, right. There's sort of, sort of all of those type of things that 
even though you might be able to construct a portfolio and then models models that are highly concentrated and show exceptional historical performance and and then but there's this sort of still a a, a more should we say sort of humanistic decision making that comes in that says okay you know I, I i just don't care right i don't care that this thing can return a thousand percent with uh you know one percent drawdown uh over you know f- uh, five years um because it's basically one market right yeah. i'm just not comfortable you know building uh, a business around trading one market so so i think that's this sort of overall uh viewpoint and we we embrace that right so and underneath that we try to then uh justify it right by by applying the models running the correlation analysis and and to see what the picture then might look like Mm-hmm. And if we think that picture is an acceptable uh, picture in terms of the sort of risk-adjusted returns and so forth. And then what we do on an individual level when we actually place a, uh, an investment, as I said, probably about, you know, I would say 80% of the, uh, of the positions have a predefined stop. Right. And, and we use the underlying volatility in that particular market to uh, determine the position sizing, which is then uh, the overall, which is sort of a function of the overall assets under management, right? It's sure. a function of the overall leverage of the portfolio and what constitute the available risk capital to that particular market. Sure, sure. Right? So, so, so that's uh, that's sort of how we look at it. Yeah. I want to jump to another section that, uh, and and this one will be a brief one for you um, because it's. Built, if I may, if I may, just interrupt you I yeah. mean, on that former point. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's that perspective is is uh, is fairly common, but nevertheless unique to our industry, right? Because if you talk to a bond manager or a stock manager or a long short stock guy, he'll tell you something very different. Mm. Right, like he will, he will allocate outright a certain amount of uh, assets or risk to a particular trade or investment, and then he will do uh, bar analysis and he'll do you know various sort of shock analysis on his portfolio, right? And he will, he will, he will come up with a profile, a risk profile to to present to a potential investor, right? But that's it's just very different the way that we look at it, right? We look at it sort of as, as a stream of serious bets mm. and all of those bets, we're willing to risk a certain amount on those bets, which yeah. are typically constant, but across very different assets, right? Yeah. No, no, it's, I completely It's just agree. that we have a very, we have a very, I think this industry has a unique perspective. I mean, I just met with a potential investor uh, um, last week and we got into this discussion and I actually found it quite challenging to uh, explain and to justify uh, the way that we view risk management and the amount of, you know, how we look at it on every position sizing, et cetera, et cetera, because he's from a more traditional bond investor, uh, you know, perspective, which have a whole different way of assessing risk. Yeah. Yeah. Did you convince him? (laughs) We'll see. see. I'll let you know. Um, (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, I wanted to jump in and ask you a little bit of, about drawdowns, because I think that uh, having, uh, you know, people talk about this uh, is, is quite important. And, and also, um, 
Uh, I think actually for investors in this space, it's very important to hear, uh, you know, um, experiences. The problem with you is, of course, you haven't really had a drawdown yet. So, so I, I, I so I'm going to rephrase my 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 question. I'm just going to drill it down to basically, you know, uh, a couple of questions, and that is, I know that you expect at some point to lose between fifteen and twenty percent. That's what your research shows you, but you haven't done anything even close to that in real trading. So how do you prepare for this drawdown? Because mentally that's going to be, you know, a different situation to be in. You're right. And I think, uh, I think Nels, that's, uh, I guess it's almost impossible to answer (laughs) before, before (laughs) you're actually in it, because I really do appreciate, uh, I do appreciate, uh, you know where you're coming from. Um, look, I guess I would I would say that uh, you know I've as a, in 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 my career yeah. uh, a number of times I've been trading and uh, trading for banks and and financial institutions and trading for my own and so forth. So yeah. you know I have experienced uh, drawdowns on an institutional level as well as on a personal level. Yeah. And um, and you you have to really you have to be you have a strong conviction. You know, I think actually, I'll tell you a story on that. Um, you will appreciate it, I think. Uh, as when I tried this business uh, first time around, with early '90s, and I went to a um, one of these conferences, and uh, I saw John Henry was sure, there. Sure. And I walked up to John and I said, "Listen, John, what advice can you give to an emerging, aspiring money manager CTA?" Right. And he says, he says to me, he says, do you believe in your models? And I said, yes. And he says, if you believe in your models, never, ever deviate from the models, follow them. You know, and, and what he's really saying is when things are rough yeah. and you have that drawdown, which you invariably will have, sure. that's when you're going to be tested. Yeah. And if you really believe in your models and the work that you've done, you stick to your guns and you'll do okay. Yeah. Which kind of goes back to, I guess, what I was trying to explain early on about the observations about the most robust systems, are actually the ones who've been through the drawdowns and, you know, been there, done that. And uh, I truly well, believe Well, John that. Henry is a particularly interesting one, right? Because he has experienced so many drawdowns and so severe ones. And invariably has managed to come back you know it's it's pretty an amazing thing no? yes and 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 but 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 there are a few people like that and and You're right. and everyone who've been around for 30 40 years have been there and done that and uh, and i guess in a sense one thing i would say um and that is in 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 answering the question which i think you did uh, perfectly um it's about your experience because you're not the typical new CTA. I mean, most young CTAs that we see start up, they start up when they come out of school almost and, and you know, probably have very little experience to draw on, uh, you know, once they go through their first drawdown. But you have something which is equally valuable, which is life experience from running and managing businesses. And, and you know, that's also stressful from time to time and and that's certainly no different from uh, 
from doing what we do. But let's just uh, jump uh, on to, to, to the next topic uh, I wanted just to touch a little bit upon because I know we've been we've been chatting already for, for a couple of hours. and uh, But I just want to touch upon research because clearly your son and you, Oliver, uh, and, and you are are doing this together and so i can imagine that there is a a, a, a few conversations over dinner uh, about uh, work as well um and um but when you're together and 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 sort of in in a research mode um what are the because this i guess is is another challenge when when you have a small team and uh, and that is you know how do you challenge each other to to um, you know, to come up with new ideas and so on and so forth. And I guess maybe the experience and the input you got from in the NYU group, um, uh, you know, will have been very valuable in 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 terms of you know new ideas, new ways of looking at it. But what what sort of the the typical research conversation you have between you the two of you when when you sit down and and talk about new things or things you want to maybe uh, explore or improve. So Nels, you, you, as yourself, you've been in the business for a long time, and and uh, you know I've been in the business for quite a long time, and 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 I've had many uh, many clients and many clients in this particular space, and I have observed uh, uh, so many different strategies being deployed over the years by 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 these uh, many successful uh, money managers so so i would say that the the um the list of research projects is is very very long actually it, it is no shortage right. i think of um, research ideas and opportunities to explore i think the issue is is uh, one of prioritization and fit mm. Right, like you know, does it fit inside of the sort of overall, you know, portfolio that 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 we want to run? Right. So, so the idea, right, when we started introducing these mean reversion models, is because we knew that the behavior, the underlying behavior of a mean reversion model, was essentially directly the opposite of, <laughs> you know, directional sure. trend models. Sure. And so we, before we started, we thought, hmm kind of you know pretty cool if we have if we can have an edge on both sides of of that equation right if we can have an edge and and then combine them you know if if things match up perfectly which they might more or less um then you should get a better risk adjusted return right and then you can you can essentially lever your portfolio uh proportionately and you should be able to extract somewhat better returns relative to the risk that you take yeah Right, so I think I think it's sort of along those lines is that you sort of imagine what a particular strategy, what it might look like, and how it might fit into your overall portfolio, and if it adds not just return, but what's the underlying correlation of that idea, yeah. and if it's right, if it's somewhat inverts, invertly correlated, or low correlated, it becomes an attractive attractive proposition so i would say i mean we have a long list of uh, of uh, <laughs> of ideas um the thing is is that to develop an idea and to thoroughly construct it and to thoroughly stress test it and to you know thoroughly get it to a point where you believe that it's robust and it can be introduced 
it actually takes a long time. Mm. Um, and I've discussed this with my son and, and I've, I've challenged him to say, look, if you can come up with a new idea and, and sort of a fully flushed out idea and, and, and model once a year, you know, I think that would be a great objective. Sure. Um, but, but I, but I think that's, I think it takes at least that. Yeah. And, and speaking, I mean, speaking on that um, topic a little bit, and that is something that I often get asked by, by the listeners. Um, and that's actually the, the converse situation, meaning how do you know that one of the models you already have in the portfolio has stopped working? Okay. So uh, we monitor, right. We monitor the, the, the theoretical performance and the sort of a historical profile uh, on a, on a real time basis with, with, with the, you know, the live models. And we look for, uh, you know, any sort of deviation um, that from, from sort of expected expectation and the expect, expected behavior and profile. Now that's more prevalent and obvious on the shorter term models, right? Just because the velocity of trades are much greater. And it's and it's and it's somewhat less on the longer ones, uh, much less on the longer ones. Mm. So I think actually the longer ones, when you're sort of talking, sort of, you know, core, right, sort of directional trend, more traditional type models, um, it's almost impossible. <laughs> it's it's like it's like basically you either believe that this thing is going to work over time or, or or not. It's almost it's it's very difficult to monitor. On, on the shorter term models, you get a lot more data points sure. and uh, you, if you can observe it uh, sooner. Yeah. One of the final topics I also want to touch on is just a little bit on the business side. And it's kind of random, the questions that, that I sometimes uh, pick, depending on how our conversation have been so far. And I think we've touched on so many things already. So I, I, I just want a question that I actually think is is relevant for for uh, managers to consider right now and and for investors to be aware of as well. Um, and since you mentioned that you are moving towards uh, sort of a, having a fund, you're launching your first fund. You're mentioning that 15% of the money you get in your fund will be uh, put a, to work through margin uh, on average, but that leaves you with 85% of the cash. And in a zero interest rate environment. Um, where potentially there could be some significant risks, maybe not obvious to the eye in uh, in the fixed income markets uh, at these historical low interest rates. Um, what are your thoughts about what you're going to do with the 85% of the money that you don't need for managing the new fund? Yeah, and Nils, that's a real conundrum. And, you know, historically... Uh, it has been one of the areas that have actually added a, a very nice cushion and sure. a very consistent return profile to our business sure. Be, because it, typically the money management business is the inverse, right? Typically it requires leverage, yeah. right? And therefore, so you have to have a, you have actually a, a cost of capital. Most investment strategies have that uh, characteristic and ours is the opposite. And, and it's a beautiful thing, right? Because historically, you could put the money into a T-bill and you could pick up a couple of uh, percent returns or back in the, in the 80s, you know, maybe five, mm. ten, ten, a lot of, you know, really good, <laughs> good sure. returns with, sure. uh, with hardly any risk. So you're right. 
what do you do today? Because there's no there's no return to be had. And actually, if you are in euro or you, you know you you have an inverse, yeah. you have an inverse problem. Sure. So it's costing you to to keep the money in cash. So so what do you do? So what we have done is uh, we think there is decent value and decent stability in short term uh, short term corporate bonds. So, so we've actually uh, put monies in uh, short-term corporate bonds, sort of one to two, three-year duration, mm-hmm. and we've essentially bought some ETFs. Yeah, and uh, and they they pick up a couple of percent or so, mm-hmm. and uh, we think that's a that's a that's a you know reasonably reasonable area. The corporate uh, America is uh, is doing quite well uh and uh and maybe maybe you could argue that there's less risk in corporate america than there is in in in, in government <laughs> in america <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and at least you get paid a little bit for sure. owning those papers so um, so that's sort of where we put the monies but we haven't we haven't we haven't invested up to the you know sort of full 85 sure. percent and and i would say we are more um we've been very patient to deploy that, in other words, sort of, we've we've been sort of had a had a mean reversion perspective on that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if they dip a little, then we'll buy some. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Now, um, you're an interesting point in 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 your business um, because um, you already have probably had lots of uh, conversations with potential investors, due diligence meetings, due diligence phone calls, and no doubt there will be, um, you know, many more to come. I wanted to ask you what your observation is so far in terms of those conversations. What are the questions that investors should be asking you, but they're not? Do you know what I mean? I mean, what do you, what should they really drill down in to understand what you do, yet they may not actually go uh, in that direction in the, in, in, in the way they phrase uh, you know, the questions they have for you? Right. So, um, or what should they be the, asking? I guess is the the short right. way of, of saying it. Well, I would say, look, I haven't had all that many conversations uh, because uh, you know I think that I think we're we're we, I, I would like to think I hope that we are sort of at an inflection point where uh, more investors uh, are going to be be sort of interested to learn a little bit more about what we're doing. Um, whereas up until this stage, I would say the majority of communication has been sort of one-sided, you know, in terms of providing information, providing information, as I told you, through monthly newsletters and illustrating, you know, how we're trading and so forth and so on. Although we have had conversations, but most of the conversation we've had, I would say, are with these early adopters, right? So besides, you know, family, friends, uh, you know, business associates, Right, which which have a certain emotional component in terms of why they give you the money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, now we're sort of into the category of I would say the early adopter, and the the early adopter is very savvy. Yeah. Right? They really really understand the space, and sure. they they really they grill you you know up you know left right center and <laughs> all around. So I'm not sure that they really leave anything any stone unturned. Sure. You know, they're pretty they're pretty uh, uh thorough sure. um and so i think that when you get into sort of the broader investor base let's say uh uh family office 
small institutional clients who are not entirely, you know, exclusively focused on investing in this space. Um, uh, uh, well, look, I would say, I mean, you know, <laughs> the thing that, that, that I stress, right, is, is this idea of, you know, this is a, this is an attractive, uh, potential return stream. It's an attractive risk adjusted return stream. And perhaps a very, a, another very attractive component is it has a very low correlation to your traditional investments in stock bonds and say real estate, right? It, 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 and so that's a very attractive high level, uh, uh situation. And, uh, I mean, in, you know, I actually think the less, the less sophisticated you are, the more basic the conversation is and I, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that meaning uh, the investors should understand what is my risk right so we talked about sure. at some point do you pull the plug right and I say to the investor who who sort of is not a, a, a professional in this space I say listen your risk your your initial risk is max peak to if you go in at the worst possible time historically over the last 34 years maybe you could be down 20% of this, of your initial investment. You have to be willing to stomach that. Um, We think uh, that we can mitigate that risk over the first 12 to 18 months. We think that, right, because our return, our targeted return profile is somewhere between 15 and 25% annualized, right? So, so I, I will say to an investor, listen, if you can hang with us for 12 to 18 months, we think we can mitigate most of that initial risk. Yeah. And in, in many ways, I mean, Nils, I think, you know, the, the simpler you keep it, sort of the better it is uh, because, um, you know, you, you can just very, very easily get lost in, in a lot of sort of intricate details that are very interesting to you and I. But uh, yeah. To an investor, it just sort of glazes over the eyes, and then they and then it, the risk is it goes into a category of, I just have no idea what they're talking about. Sure. I don't understand it. It makes me uncomfortable, and you know I, I'm not really going to do this. You know. <laughs> and I do agree that many of the early adopters they are uh, pretty savvy and they ask uh, good questions. So so I uh, I think that's right. going to jump to the last section Kim we're almost there you know there's light at the end of the tunnel here and it's one of my favorite categories uh, or sections uh, which is the one I call general and fun so not a lot to do specifically with with any models or, or, or systems but just something that gives people a little bit of color um, and and hopefully uh, one or two um, good insights to uh, to take away uh, as well I wanted to ask you, uh, just as just to start off with, just to ask you. I mean, you tried a lot already in your career, um, and along the way, you may have uh, read, uh, you know, a, a few books uh, that have guided you to take some of the decisions that you've taken. If you're going to recommend a, a book or two uh, for people to, could be either improve their trading or improve their their business, um, which which books would you uh, would you say have had the most impact on 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 your on your career? 
So, um, uh, Nels, you know, I've been along, I've been around for a long time and, uh, I've read quite a few books and, um, you know, sort of the early books, right. With the Wells Wilder, uh, some of the Larry Williams books, um, uh, Jack Swagger, Swagger, you sure. know, of the top traders, right. Was always a very expiring and interesting. Um, I think there's a more recent book called the quants and, uh, and then there are sort of a little bit more specific books that are sort of more detailed around the, is it Ralph Wentz, uh, Wentz that goes into, uh, you know, the optimal, uh, F, you know, risk, uh, uh, in a portfolio and so forth. And they get more, much more technical in nature. Right. Right. So, so I would say it depends a little bit sort of where you are. Yeah. Right. If, if you're looking for an introduction and you want to understand this business sort of from a little bit more general and a higher level and you want to get inspiration from other people who have succeeded in the space, you know, Jack Swagger's book is, uh, you know, is, uh, books are probably some of the best. Yeah. Um, and and then I think that um, if you if you sort of uh, if you really, really seriously and really on the professional levels, I, I think it's good to read a lot of these books, but I think you have to toss them out, right? You just, you just have to toss them out and you have to, you have to sit down and you really have to think critically about the markets and the microstructure and how they work and the psychology around the markets and why markets behave the way they behave. And then, and then I think you have to think about how to capture that behavior, um, uh, you know, mathematically, uh, you know, for, you know, through sort of logic, right? And 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 then you can then you can maybe maybe you can sort of go back into the toolkit, right? Into into the books and stuff, and, and you can go in and you can maybe extract extrapolate out maybe an indicator or a concept, and you can say, okay, how does how can I use that tool? to to try to solve this uh this issue this opportunity to uncover this opportunity right uh, you know can i can i can i use that or do i need to come up with something completely uh new to try to capture this idea um right so i think i think that's where you i, I think that's where you want that's got to be uh if you want to you know if you want to be in this space at the at the cutting edge and you want to compete, you have to be um, somewhat original, not, you know, not completely from scratch, but you have to be somewhat original in the way that you um, construct your models and the way you try to um, solve the problem of, 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 you know, extracting earnings. Sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, if, if you could buy something off the shelf, right, and just plug it in and off you go, then, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think that's just, that's just not quite realistic, sure, sure, um, sure. but there are also a lot of components, right? I mean, there's so many sides to, to this business, right? I mean, you could, you could develop a, an incredible alpha model. Um, but if you don't understand, uh, the risk components, like how to manage the risk, or if you don't understand the, how to construct a portfolio properly, then uh, you know you're probably not going to be very successful. Sure, no, that's true. Right, right. So there's so many different components, and I think a lot of the books will help you think about all the various different areas that you need to con to to consider and that you need to incorporate into 
um, uh, the management of of, of 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 investing, trading in the markets, and building portfolios, and managing monies. Um, but in the end of the day, you have to think of, think about it critically yourself, and you you sort of have to construct it from from that vantage point on. Sure. It sounds like on my side, unfortunately, keep, we're losing a little bit of our, our crisp uh, connection here. So I'll I'll try and wrap up with the last uh, few questions before we lose the the, uh, the 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 Skype connection entirely. But I wanted to ask you, as you build your business, are there any other CTAs, bigger ones that you look at for, you know, to aspire to? I mean, uh, I mean, are you looking outside and saying? You know, prolific capital. I would love for them to be like so and so in a few years' time. Right. So, <clears throat> look, uh, I've had many of the successful uh, CTAs as clients over the years, and I know that uh, one of the clients uh, you I- interviewed, whom I think is uh, is uh, really brilliant and uh, and uh, you know, sort of an original uh, sure. thinker. I, I, I can guess who who it might be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you want to guess before before I say? <laughs> and my guess would be Roy Niederhofer. Yes, you're right. Okay. Exactly. So so Victor was a client of mine early on. His his brother and subs, you know, and Roy and Victor worked together back then, and they were clients of mine. And uh, and I had a lot of you know interaction with them, and and they're just uh, you know really original uh, thinkers, independent thinkers, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's uh, very aspir- aspirational, mm. um, and and uh, I think that's it's it's really uh, pretty cool what they do. Yeah. Um, uh, somebody who came out of that uh, group who was also a client of mine who was extremely successful uh, was Trout, right? Unroad Trout, sure. sure. Um, so very interesting. Uh, you know, I had encounters with, uh, as you know, with uh, with uh, Paul Tudor Jones. Yeah. And he's also subsequently been client and so forth. And uh, it's just a, a very, uh, very inspiring, um, you know, sort of background right? yeah. you know, where he comes from as a cotton pit trader and, sure. and developing the business as successfully as he had. Uh, you know, Bruce Kovner, right? There's a lot of these guys that are that are really quite admirable in terms of uh, you know how successful they've been. So, so I think there's a uh, you know this is sort of to aspire to uh, to any and all, all of those guys. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Sure. Well, with with those connections, uh, Kim, feel free to invite them to uh, to come and talk to me on the podcast. <laughs> I, I'll give it. I'll give it a try. No problem. <laughs> now, um, clearly, your son Oliver works with you. Uh, you have uh, three other children, as you mentioned. If you could pass on just one of your own skills to your children, what would that be? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, uh, okay. Um, well, I think that uh, I think that in life uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a very good thing. It's a good quality to be uh, open-minded, open-minded with a with a sort of a a, a, a positive uh, uh, perspective, and and I think uh, that in life you want to try to position yourself for success. Uh, whether that is uh, in your uh, professional vocation, personal relationships, uh, if you are competitive in sports, or if you are in this business, which is a competitive business, 
um, you want to you want to be open minded and positive, and you want to be able to take in whatever comes your way in life. You want to take it in with an open mind and with a positive perspective, mm. because when you do that, your your brain has a much greater capacity to process those inputs and to organize them and position themselves or, or you can position yourself around it for the best successful outcome most successful outcome so if i were to pass on something to my children i would say uh, keep a keep an open mind a positive mind and uh, and and use those uh, circumstances to position yourself for future success great great advice kim now Can you tell me, uh, before we sort of round up, can you tell me a fun fact about yourself, Kim? Something that people, even people who know you, may not know about you? <laughs> uh, I don't know if anybody would qualify and classify me as a, as a sort of super fun guy no i didn't mean necessarily uh, yeah. that it has to, that you you know <laughs> that you do stand-up comedy in your in your spare time but right, something right. it could be it could be a talent could be something uh -huh. that even people who are around you may not know you know that you well, that you enjoy uh, doing or not enjoy doing for that matter well know. okay so i actually didn't mention this okay. uh, but uh But the, since you you we're having this conversation from your home in uh, in Switzerland, in sure. I believe, right? I I my my dad is in Geneva and my brother is in Geneva and Switzerland and uh, my brother is an avid polo player. Right. And uh, so when I go to Geneva, invariably he uh, he convinces me to get on the top of a horse and play a few chuckers with him. So a secret is. That I grew up on a farm in Denmark with horses, and I actually had some kind of race horses. So I didn't know how to ride. It's not something I do every day. Sure. So, uh, so you can imagine the sort of the challenge of uh, going over for a periodic visit. Sure. To get on top of a, a, as an Argentinian <laughs> polo horse, right? And uh, playing a, a few checkers in Geneva with the Geneva Polo Club is uh, kind of a yeah. Interesting yeah. thing. Absolutely. And, and I guess a comical thing when I land up on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's where the fun part comes in or the fun factor comes in. Yeah, I hope people uh, got caught that because I can hear in, on my side that our our connection is, is breaking up. Um, but before we finish, uh, and this will then be my last question, I said earlier that... Um, You know, I think it is important that investors ask the right question. So I'm also going to turn it on myself and ask you um, if I missed something today in trying to cover all the ground about you and 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 what you do at uh, with Prolific. Um, and uh, if there's anything that we uh, need to to cover uh, towards the end here in order to do justice to you and 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 your firm. Um. Nels, I, I thank you very much. I think you've been uh, uh, <clears throat> super thorough. You, you know, normally, uh, you know, with most people, it's an elevator pitch of 30 seconds and you're out the door. Sure. So, uh, so having uh, the opportunity to talk about what we do for uh, for an extended period of time, I think we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of detail, and I, I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, look, there, there are other things we can talk about, but uh, but I I think that you covered uh, by, by the vast majority and gave 
uh, yeah, hopefully our listeners a good insight into what prolific is all about sure absolutely and of course we have to thank mark goodman for making the introduction most people it's will true. know mark uh, as as one of the founders of of kenmar back in the day so uh, so i want to put that on record uh, that was very kind and this has certainly been uh, a great conversation not just because we're we have uh, our danish history uh, in common it has been uh, enlightening it has been um you know i think a lot of people have can take a lot away from from this conversation on on many different aspects uh, so so i really appreciate that i appreciate your your willingness to be transparent about a lot of things uh, which is something that not everyone is comfortable with so uh, so with that in mind kim i want to say uh, you know thanks very much and i want to ask you where people can best find you and and learn more about prolific well uh, we are we're located in uh, new jersey mm-hmm. um, we're located in new jersey and uh, i guess the best way to contact us would be uh, through uh, email sure. and uh, you can reach us on uh, kbang at prolific-capital.com great and of course i will put all of these details uh, in Uh, the show notes for this episode on toptradersonplugged.com. So I hope we will uh, be able to connect later in the year and hear about the great work you're doing. And of course, at some point, perhaps even introduce Oliver to to the podcast as well. So all I have to say now is thanks so much and um, hope to speak to you later. Thank you very much, Nils. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. I know. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.